Welcome to the prism. This is the place where modern worldviews, events and ideas come under biblical scrutiny. This is an interesting subject. Must a Christian be a member of a church? There's two parts to it. The first part I know very little about. Must a Christian be a member of a church? The second, what if I don't fit in, is a subject of which I have extensive knowledge. And I hope to share some of that with you. And my wife said to me on the way down in the car, maybe you could talk about what if I don't even try to fit in? Because you probably have more knowledge of that. So it's an important topic. And it's a topic we should say that Christians don't always agree about. Must I be a member of a church? And I think probably the best way to approach that would be for me to say, should a Christian be a member of a church? I don't know. What do you think? I'll leave it for you to discuss. Because everybody will have totally different views on that subject. You will have your own well-informed opinion. And I'm sure you'll be very eager to defend that position. And I'm not going to disagree with you. Because these matters are not essential as far as saving faith is concerned. So we're not going to fall out if we don't take exactly the same line. Still, I have given the subject a wee bit of consideration. And what follows will simply be my thoughts. Classic arguments rehearsed for and against the issue. We need to set some parameters. We need to agree on a couple of essential definitions. So our question prompts us to ask, what do we mean when we talk about a church? And what do we mean when we talk about membership of a church? So what is a church? It's a question I was forced to confront in 1986 when I went to my very first church as a, as a new minister. But my first church was a wee place called Anakanoon, and people referred to it all over the place as the hall. It was the hall. You didn't go to church, you went to the hall. And as somebody from Bangor, in the heart of liberal North Down, I had this awful habit of calling it the church. And it was greatly frowned upon, greatly frowned upon. I mean, surely the pastor should know the building is not a church. The building's just the hall. You know, the people are the church, not the masonry. And they were right, of course, although their understanding was more clouded by their links with brethrenism. The church, of course, falls broadly into two divisions. The visible church, as we call it, and the invisible church. The visible church we sometimes call Christendom. The visible force of Christi, face of Christianity. It's often fragmented, it's often divided. It consists of denominations and schisms and local assemblies and great worldwide movements. And it's very often not even a pale reflection of the church that Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 18. Or the church of the early disciples in Ballymacashan over the past while back. We've been looking at the book of Acts learning some exciting lessons about what the early church was like. Some of the modern churches are vastly different. We've noticed that. Our small b Baptist and congregation and Puritan forefathers longed for a pure church, didn't they? 
Yet even John Owen, writing in the Savoy Declaration, confessed the purest of churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ at all, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, Christ always hath had and ever shall have a visible kingdom in this world. One of the tricks that is pulled upon gullible ecumenical clergy by radio interviewers here in the past was to say to them, do you not think the Roman Catholic Church is a Christian church? And the stammering ecumenical clergyman would always want to reply, uh, yes. But a good number of evangelicals balked at the question too. After all, who wants to be unpopular? Calvin had a great definition of a church and the reformers in general as being a place where the word of God is proclaimed, where the sacraments are correctly administered and where church discipline is preserved. And in a congregational small c context, because, you know, while not all congregationalists are Baptists, all Baptists are congregationalists. So we have the same kind of church government. We always think of the church as it is in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20, that where two or three people are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The good definition of a church, just a group of people meeting together as the body of Christ. It's what we tried to do at Ballymacashan, just to have a group of Christian friends who meet together around the word of God, who have fellowship together, who have morning worship on the Lord's Day. We observe the sacraments. We leave the sanctuary and go into the kitchen and have homemade soup and chat for an hour. The visible church meeting. The invisible church, of course, is the true body of Christ on earth. It includes all Christians everywhere, those who are truly being saved from every age, every nation, every ethnicity. It is totally unstructured in and of itself because only God himself knows who is a member of the invisible church. And membership, as Colin so rightly said earlier, is not obtained through signing a membership form or through a vote of the members, its membership is those who have been ordained by God to be his from before the foundation of the world, people who are there because of Christ's atoning death on the cross for them, those who, in response to his saving love, have repented of their sins and trusted in him, and one day that church will be complete, and every single member of that church will be in heaven, and none will be lost and they'll be in the presence of God forever and ever. And unlikely visible church, the invisible church that only God sees, is already united. For all true believers are already within it. John Owen again, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been or shall be gathered unto one under Christ, its head, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. 
So when we talk about being members of a church tonight, we're not speaking about membership of the church, which is Christ's body that only God can see, the true body of Christ. We're referring to the visible church, to a denomination, to a local expression of a church, to a local assembly. And that takes us to our second definition. What do we mean when we talk about membership? That's a real debate in the denomination that I belong to. Sometimes in some of our churches, we have a kind of a two-tier kind of membership where you can be a member or rightly an adherent and you can be a communicant member, a kind of formal way of giving expression to the fact that the church consists of a mixed multitude. Of course, it's abused, isn't it? So we'll exclude those people from our definition. And we'll assume that to be a member of a church is something as follows, like this. Membership in a local church involves commitment to worship the Lord corporately together, edifying brothers and sisters through mutual exhortation and service, cooperating together in the mission of the church, holding each other accountable to walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord as a witness to the truth of Christ in the world, a wise and helpful path for those who desire to work together in obedience to the Lord and in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Paul writes, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So let's summarize those definitions. All true Christians are, by reason of their new birth, de facto members of this universal invisible church, which is the body of Christ on earth. That church is made visible, has an expression on earth in the form of groups of Christians meeting together in churches imperfect in many ways. There is no perfect visible church. And formal membership of that visible church is usually through an identification with a local assembly or denomination belonging to a church with usually with its distinctive doctrines and practices. So what are the classic arguments for and against church membership? I'm going to give you both. The case for church membership could be summed up like this. Classic arguments, and there are a number of classic arguments that are generally held, a number of arguments made as to why a Christian should be a fully signed up member of a local expression of a church. They're well rehearsed. One of them, of course, is because of the doctrine of church discipline. In that passage that we read, Matthew chapter 18, there is a system of church discipline, isn't there? An example of how disputes should be resolved between Christians. Very simple. If a brother sins against you, you must go to him first You must try to resolve the issue. If that matter can't be resolved and the relationship be repaired, then you must go and take some others with you 
and you must try to solve it in a more uh, public setting with rather corporate setting. And again, if the matter can't be resolved, then it has to be taken to the church. And only then, if the matter can't be resolved, would the relationship between the two people be brought to an end. Now that's laid out in the scriptures by the Lord Jesus himself as a way that church discipline is carried out. Now the fact that that requires a formal church discipline process and a church court into which that final um that final the matter has to finally be brought before people can disassociate with each other um would be indicative of the fact that the church has some kind of a membership. In our small C congregational system of government, that court would be required be referred to, I suppose, as our church meeting. Can you imagine just how justice would be perverted if the exact membership of that church meeting has not been already defined? The offender could simply ask all his friends and supporters to turn up at that meeting and give him their support. And it has happened that way. I could take you to a church in County Town where up until a number of years ago, perhaps 10 years ago, membership was terribly unregulated. And it was simply the case that when people wanted to get something through the church meeting, they would invite their friends to come. Some would, I'm told, actually leave the local pubs, walk round to the church, cast their vote in favour of whatever their friends were voting for, and leave the meeting and go back to the pub. There was no regulation. It requires a church membership. And so the argument is that if you're going to have church discipline as Jesus laid out in Matthew chapter 18, then you do need to have a defined membership within the church. Paul builds up on that. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Telling Christians that in disputed matters, there is to be a court within the church, a body within the church that can determine their, um, their case. And that requires a formal membership. Second classic argument, try not to make these all so long, is because there is such a thing as excommunication, isn't there? In a formal public disfellowshipping of an individual, sometimes it's necessary to put someone out of fellowship with other Christians particularly in the case of serious doctrinal error or heresy or immoral behaviour. Paul writing again, Have I not written unto you not to keep company if any man that be called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a man not to eat? 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 12, For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not judge them. Do ye, do not ye judge them that are within. Um, it says, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So there are those who are two groups of people here. Those who are without, those who are outside the church. Those who are within, people who are within the church. 
The church is responsible for judging its own members. We can't judge the outside world. They have to judge among themselves. They have to go to their secular courts. But it is our job to judge our own members, to exercise church discipline. And if the church decides that there is a wicked or a immoral person and they are guilty of that sin, then that person is to be, according to Paul, put outside the church. And that is a formal removal. Um, which implies, of course, that the person being formally removed had once been formally a member. So there's a kind of a formal application for membership. So because of church discipline, because there is such a thing as excommunication, the third classic argument is that it will facilitate Christians to submit to their elders. We are to submit to our elders. Remember what it says in Hebrews. Hebrews very simple, remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. Obey them, Hebrews 13 and 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. If we are going to submit ourselves to elders who have a rule over us, that implies, is the argument, that there is a formal consent has been given to such an arrangement. And that formal submission requires a form of covenant between the person in submission and the leader in question. And throughout the scriptures, covenant relationships are formally ratified. The fourth classic argument is to replicate the biblical motifs of the church. In the church, in the, in the scriptures, the church is seen in certain ways, isn't it? It's seen as being the shepherd and the sheep, for example. And so the New Testament depicts the church in terms of a flock with shepherds. Um, it's the perfect motif of leadership and, and membership. The shepherd doesn't drive the flock. He leads the flock. He cares for the flock. He regards the flock as being his particular personality. And that's demonstrated, of course, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, where the, uh, where Paul is leaving the, the church at Ephesus and he says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock upon which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. The requirement for elders to care for a particular flock, a group of believers, a local church. They're placed under his care, under his charge by God himself. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. So those elders knew exactly for whom they were responsible, spiritually speaking. They were specifically connected. Of course, the shepherd and the sheep's not the only biblical motif of the church, is it? The classic one is the body of Christ. And one commentator says there, there is something unusual about a Christian attaching himself to a body of believers and not being a member of the body, but like having a cut-off thumb sitting around the house somewhere, just keeping it. We don't use to anyone. 
It's for those reasons that most evangelicals believe that membership of a local church is a proper course of action for every believer. Uh, because of church discipline, because of the existence of excommunication, because of the need for Christians to submit to elders requires a covenant and to replicate the biblical motifs of the church. So we're part of a local congregation. We will act as a court in the event of disciplinary procedures. We will submit ourselves to such discipline. We will submit to local elders. We will be watched over and cared for by them as part of an organic, a local organic whole. And most evangelicals, of course, will argue that the Bible knows nothing of solitary Christians. They are a contradiction. Becoming a Christian brings us into the body of Christ, which is expressed in the union of local bodies of believers. And those are the arguments for church membership. Are there any arguments against church membership? Well, there are. There are churches who, by deliberate choice, uh, do not have a formal role of members. In fact, I was talking to an elder just a few days ago, and I brought this subject up, hoping to pick his brain. And he said, you're talking to the wrong person, because... Although I'm an elder in church, I'm kind of inclined to think that church membership in this day and age in which we live has become impossible to enforce because Christians seem to do whatever they want. But there are churches who deliberately choose not to have a formal role of members. They think that to belong to a body, to play an active and enthusiastic part in the worship and the life of a local assembly is enough. And they think of that briefly for a few reasons. And one of those is because of the difficulties in determining criteria for membership. How far do you go? In some churches, like the one I belong to, it is enough to be a professing Christian with a credible profession of faith to be a member of the local church. But in other churches, they add to that. Uh, to be a member, one would not only have to be a born-again believer, but hold to a particular doctrinal position. Perhaps on baptism, for example, is a good uh, example of that, where people will say, well, you can be a Christian, and but if you're going to be a member of our church, you have to be baptised by a certain formula in a certain way, in a certain depth of water. And other people will say, well, you know, the depth of water doesn't really matter that much. But, um, so there are different criteria for membership in different churches. What if the only good, solid, reformed church in my area is the one that had a requirement that I couldn't meet? And I found that I enjoyed the fellowship there, that it was sweet fellowship, that the teaching was really sound, that the praise was in keeping with biblical principles, but I was debarred from membership. Should I forgo that fellowship or should I attend and pledge a personal allegiance to be in attendance and to support the church financially and in every other way and be a good encouragement if possible to the leaders and be a member of the congregation in every respect except for the fact that my name is not written in a book and when it comes to the meeting I can't vote. Wouldn't that be better though than going to a church that didn't and wasn't perhaps as faithful 
uh, to the scriptures. Another argument that's made is that perhaps membership often leads to authoritarianism. We've heard of a church that said that it was never possible to resign your membership. You could transfer to another church, but you, if you don't transfer, you're a member. And you stay a member even though you never attend anymore and you're probably going somewhere else. Or we can excommunicate you, but you can't ever leave. Perhaps uh, even by its very nature, church membership protects an authoritarian structure, as it has done so often, especially in Roman Catholicism. The third argument, sometimes, is because membership makes the body of Christ equivalent to an institution. And there are some genuine believers who think that the church is simply an organic body of believers already united in Christ, already in fellowship with one another, and that no other formal structure is required, that the church is quite literally where two or three are met together in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there's the arguments for, a handful of arguments against. What about abuses of church membership? I'm sure that you can think of some instances. You can think back to the 70s, to the so-called heavy shepherding movement. Whenever people submitted themselves to elders who ruled over them in more ways than perhaps they ought to, when they determined who their marital partner would be, what their job would be, and so on and so forth. Or what about the modern seeker-driven obsession with tithing? One large seeker-driven so-called missional church in Northern Ireland requires, I'm told, a hundred volunteers to run its Sunday service. And that takes pots and pots of cash. And the church membership covenant can reach right into your bank account. And many of those so-called attractional churches actually require members to produce accounts to them so they can collect their 10% gross or the requirement to pay buy into the pastor's God-given dream, where the modern vision-casting leader has this false notion that God gives them and them alone a vision, or a dream for the church, and they have vision Sunday once a year, and the pastor casts his God-given vision which becomes the vision statement of the church into which all the members must buy, even if it's distinctly unbiblical. Abuses of church membership. So we've seen the arguments for, the arguments against, the possible abuses. Let's have a quick conclusion before we move on to part two. How am I doing for time, Colin? I've got the same amount to go again. The Bible conclusions, the Bible knows nothing of a lone Christian. When you're saved, you're born into the body of believers. You cannot be a Christian on your own. I suppose there must be places in the world where there are very few Christian believers. I heard a missionary talking about a town in North Africa, in a place where there was... Very, very few Christians. He was the only Christian in his town. And there was no town for miles. And that's a different matter. In a Muslim country, 
lone Christian. There was nothing of the spiritual gypsy. He just wanders about from local church to local church. The, the Bible knows nothing of the church shopper who just goes around looking for the church that suits me best or the mega church pew warmer where you go to a church that has a huge crowd so you can sit there week after week and just do nothing and warm a pew and hope that you'll be entertained enough to go back next week. <coughs> Biblical church membership is a total practical financial prayerful commitment to the work of the Lord among a local group of believers. It's submission to stated elders within that group It's regular attendance when the group worships, but it is not a saving ordinance. Simply evidence that saving grace has occurred. Let's move on to the second part. This is the bit I know most about. What if I don't fit in? After all, I was a minister in a Pentecostal church for nearly 20 years, I know all about not fitting in. My fitting in, not fitting in, I suppose is the description of my entire pastoral life. I always considered a part of my ministry to be a total pain for those who actually believed what my denomination taught. Um, One senior minister genuinely believed, a man who's well known in Northern Ireland, a man who has been on the radio and written books and all sorts of things, genuinely expressed the opinion in a meeting of the church that I was a kind of secret agent, a fifth columnist, uh, embedded by none other than the Free Presbyterians to destroy Pentecostalism from within. I can assure you I wasn't embedded by the Free Presbyterians. The rest of it might have been true, but I wasn't embedded by the Free Presbyterians. What we're really asking here when we ask, what if I don't fit in? What we're really asking is when should I leave my church? What's a really good reason to leave a church? What's not? I mean, should you leave the church because the pastor's got this really irritating voice? Um, Or because the church is always too hot? or too cold, or because the singing is too fast, or too slow. I was thinking about why people leave churches in Northern Ireland, and I thought if I was to put out a survey, what would our survey say? And from my own experience, this is not, you can disagree with this because this is just my own experience. One of the main reasons that I've found that people leave churches is for the sake of the children. Okay, no, Pastor, there's nothing wrong with your preaching, but really enjoy it. And the church has great, and we have so many friends here, but we're not coming back, and it's for the sake of the children. I've heard that over and over again. I wonder why it is that the most spiritually immature, well, one would hope so, why the most spiritually immature members of a family are able to influence so strongly that family's worship practices. Hmm? I consider that a a failure of the duty of parenting. 
What they want to do is to pass the responsibility for parenting their kids and for teaching their kids and bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They want to leave that to somebody else. They want the local church to do it for them, to do what they're supposed to do. They want the local church to take over their parental responsibilities and bring up their kids as little Christians instead of understanding can I be slightly controversial? What it means for their children to be part of God's covenant of grace. Um, that it is their responsibility. It is their duty to teach their children what Christian worship is about. Why going to church is different than what you do in other places. Why they need to be participators in the worship. And I don't mean in taking them out of the worship and putting them into children's church and letting them colour in with crayons. I mean teaching them what, why we sing what we sing. Teaching them when the pastor is reading from God's word. Helping them to read the scriptures with you. Whenever we're praying, teaching them why we're praying, why we're not doing things in a certain way and why we are doing things in a certain way. It's a parent's duty to teach their children about Christian worship and to enable them to be fully participating in Christian worship. After all, the worship of the church is not about age. It's about what, not what about, it's not about what appeals to any specific generation. It is to be honouring of God and to be all about Him. Main reason people in Northern Ireland leave churches, in my humble experience, for the sake of the children. Bad excuse. And the other one is I don't like the worship. Worship wars. And that's not about contemporary versus traditional either. Although if the church is singing songs that are not full of biblical content, you know, you need to be considering that. Far too far to travel to go to church, isn't it? Of course, that can be legitimate sometimes. Perhaps there are better ways to use the financial resources that the Lord has given you than to donate them to BP or Maxwell. Too many hypocrites in the church. I know. I'm one of them. And so are you. Ask the pastor to read Martin Luther and to teach the church the doctrine of Samuel Eustace et Peccator. That we're all sinners. And we all let the Lord down. I don't like the dress code in that church. Too much commitment for me. None of those, in my humble opinion, are valid excuses Going back to the reformer's definition of a church as a place where the word of God is properly proclaimed and the sacraments rightly observed, I have been preaching at various churches all over the years. The majority of them are Baptistic churches. They believe in credo-baptist baptism. I'm, as you know, a congregationalist. The only one left in the whole of Northern Ireland. And before Christmas, a friend asked me, when you retire from preaching, where will you go? Where will you find a church that suits you? 
And I had no hesitation. I said, I'm going to go to you. And I mentioned the name of a church. I'm not going to tell you what it was. It would be a Baptistic church. I have no problem at all with attending a church like that on a regular basis. I have reverent worship and praise. It's conservative. The preaching is as sound as a bell. Um, you know, by personal preference, I would like my ideal church to be like me. I wouldn't mind, though, if they sang holy, 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 as well as psalms. Because at the end of the day, it's only me saying that. I'd say you can disagree with this. You know, the Mormons can sing all the psalms, but they can't sing holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. What are the legitimate reasons for leaving a church? John MacArthur is particularly helpful. I'm going to finish with this. He gives us some perfectly good reasons why you should leave a church if you find you don't fit in. There are six of them. First of all, heresy and some fundamental truth being taught in the pulpit. Secondly, the leaders of the church tolerating seriously errant doctrine from any who are given teaching authority in the fellowship. So perhaps a Sunday school teacher, that sort of thing. So if a church invites a preacher in, for example, with aberrant beliefs on the Trinity, perhaps a oneness preacher, that's a good reason to leave that church. If the church, thirdly, if the church is characterized by a wanton disregard for scripture, such as a refusal to discipline members who are sinning blatantly. Fourthly, where the church tolerates unholy, ungodly living within its ranks. Fifthly, where the church is seriously out of step with the biblical pattern that's laid down for the church. After all, in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6, Paul writes, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that worketh, walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition that he received of us. And lastly and sixthly, where the church is marked by gross hypocrisy, where they give lip service to biblical Christianity, but refuse to acknowledge its true power, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. So MacArthur. So the point that I'm probably making is that I probably won't ever fit perfectly into a church. Because thankfully there's not a church anywhere full of people exactly like me. And what an awful thought that would be. There'll always have to be an element of compromise when we meet together, won't there? Reasonable acceptance of other people's opinions, so long as they are biblical. And when I don't fit in because of error in the church, or any of those reasons that MacArthur has given us, then it's probably best to go and find fellowship somewhere else.